zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Endless Love, released July 17, 1981. It was written by Judith Rasco, based on a novel by Scott Spencer, directed by Franco Zeffirelli, and released by Universal Pictures. Scott Spencer's novel Endless Love was published in 1979, when it came to casting, Shirley Knight, who plays Jade's mother, Mrs. Butterfield, warned Zeffirelli against Brooke Shields, possibly as a result of her Razzie from the Blue Lagoon, suggesting in her place Rosanna Arquette, Linda Blair, Bo Derrick, Carrie Fisher, Jodie Foster, Melanie Griffith, Jennifer Jason Lee, Christy McNichol, Michelle Pfeiffer, or Deborah Winger. I hope Shields wasn't privy to this effort before the production. Carrie Fisher would have been too, too old. Yeah, yeah, but Carrie Fisher also was one of the people we listed as auditioning for Blue Lagoon last year, so they seem to be up for a lot of the same stuff. Mm. Meg Ryan auditioned for the part of Jade, and Robbie Benson read for David, which I can see working, but mm -hmm. no offense to Benson, I just don't think he has Martin Hewitt's like sex appeal. I think he's a bit goofy, but maybe that's just because we've only seen him in Die Laughing and Tribute so far, which were very hammy roles. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that, but I also... I don't know. I think he's more attractive. I think he is more attractive than this guy. He's but, he's wider eyed. But this, he, but but more attractive in a more innocent way. Like maybe. This, this guy is more like I don't know, kind of creepy. Yeah, a little bit. The original cut was rated X until director Zeffirelli made lots of cuts, mostly editing around the nudity of Brooke Shields' body double, which is why we see Martin Hewitt's butt in their more intimate scenes and not hers. They had to resubmit to the MPAA over and over. And as my cousin Vinny taught us, six times is a charm, and they finally brought it into an R rating after removing an hour of material. Wait a minute. Okay. I have some problems with that. One, so dude butts okay, girl butts not okay. She was 16 when they shot this movie. Oh, okay. It's an age thing. It's not okay. I don't know necessarily, but that seems to make a difference. But dude butts a are okay, MPAA-wise. Oh, mm -hmm. okay. Interesting. Because I, I guess... Well, so he was he was obviously not 16. He was 23. But was the double old enough? Does that make a yeah. difference? The double was old enough, so, so apparently it didn't make a difference. That doesn't make a difference. Okay. So just implying 16-year-old butt is not okay. Yeah. Apparently, yeah. But then how did it have an extra hour worth of material to cut? It was already still pretty long. I guess they must have put other stuff back in. Yeah, I don't know how much of uh, what's in the book what was shot because there's a lot of stuff at the end of the novel that is not in the film oh okay the film tested very poorly with audiences laughing hysterically during serious scenes and word of mouth killed it at the box office the popular theme song a duet from diana ross and lionel richie is original to the film and now i actually disagree with arthur's theme winning but we'll get to all that with our re-oscar episode 100 years from now <laughs> Original author Scott Spencer didn't even recognize his book in the finished film, but I would guess that he can appreciate it now, thanks to the horrendous 2014 remake, which inspired him to speak with The Hollywood Reporter and warn viewers away from the adaptation on its opening weekend. 
Upon its release, the movie was viciously panned by critics, and at the end of the year it landed six Razzie nominations for Picture, Director, Screenplay, Both Leads, and Supporting Actress for Shirley Knight, but it didn't win any. Huh. Wasn't that bad, guys? I didn't think so either. I kind of liked it. Uh, And I don't think Shirley Knight... Yeah, of all people, to pick out her performance... We start in a sort of flowing red blur with the shapes of people floating around in it. Across the bottom of the screen, the words endless love repeat over and over again without spaces. The E at the end of love is also the E at the beginning of endless so that it looks like one long word. We fade to black on a kiss between the two shapes in the red blur. And we come back up in the Chicago Museum of Science and Industry with an enormous walkthrough heart display that was sadly removed from the museum in 2009. Have you ever been there? I have. I was yeah. pretty sure you told me about this heart oh, before. Yeah, well, I, I, I thought it looked familiar, and I, but at this point in the movie, I don't think I realized it was Chicago. Yeah. Um, but like, there's you know, throughout the rest of the movie, there's like posters and cups, and there's all sorts of things that and they're like, on Lakeshore Drive all the time. Yeah, indicate that you're in Chicago, but I didn't realize it at this point. I'm like, why does this look so familiar? And I have been there, uh, yeah. and I was probably there before 2009. I remember. Um, Pretty sure my my dad took me like we played hooky. We didn't go to school one day, and we went to Chicago <laughs> and went to the museum, which is probably just as good as being in school, right? Yeah, <laughs> better probably. A class of children are being escorted to the next room of the museum. We cut to a planetarium where a disembodied voice speaks in Carl Saganisms about the universe. Maybe it is Carl Sagan's voice on a recording. I don't uh, know. It didn't sound like Carl. Didn't Sagan. sound like him to me either. A boy we will come to know as David, played by Martin Hewitt sneaks into the room to take a seat next to his girlfriend Jade, played by Brooke Shields, two years his junior in the film. In real life, she was 16 and Hewitt was 23. The stars above remind Jade of death as she asks David what he would do if she died. Mystery. What would you do if I died? The heavenly stars, the shrinking planetary systems, the red giants, the white dwarfs. When the lights come back up, Jade's teacher suddenly notices the student that doesn't belong. David introduces himself as David Axelrod, a senior. Jade Harris with the sophomore class. I thought for sure he was giving an alias. Yeah. When he said <laughs> David Axelrod. Since it sounds like such a fake name. Yeah. But it also sounds like a very real name. It did. And I was like, who's David Axelrod? Why do I know this name? Do you guys recall the last time we dealt with a David Axelrod? In the show? We've had one on the podcast and there's another one in real life. I guess they're both in real life. <laughs> one of them worked on a movie we've discussed, and one of them didn't. So it's the name of a p- character in the movie, or it's the name of a person in the movie? A man with the name David Axelrod wrote the screenplay for Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen. Uh, Fun okay. fact, another man with the same name was the chief strategist of Obama's presidential campaign. Well, that's that's why the name is familiar. Yes. <laughs> we cut to David's bedroom, where we see him putting on a three-piece suit and a tie to head out to a party. He tries to say goodbye to his parents on the way out, but they're too busy arguing over court cases. Not with each other, but with separate groups of people. They seem to both be attorneys working on separate cases in the house, and they don't even have time to say goodnight to him. David's racist grandmother asks where he's going, and he says he's attending a dinner party with his girlfriend Jade, who she assumes is a Chinese person. Yeah, she just arrived from the People's Republic of China. She's studying capital investment. (laughs) David rides his bike to the Butterfield house across town, and Jade Butterfield comes out to meet him on the porch in an adorable white dress with a ring of flowers in her hair. I don't think the the joke lands as good as it could have because we don't know what Jade looks like at this point, so she yeah. could right. be Chinese. That's so true. I don't. Yeah, it does. It, it, I feel like this belonged later in the movie. Maybe. Uh, I think it, it's also that David has never brought her around. 
like like they he's she's never met his family and they've never seen her okay and we'll learn later that they know nothing about the butterfields david is welcomed in by jade's older brother keith played by a young james spader they head into the kitchen where jade's father is working on dinner and because it's already clear that the butterfields are a bit hippie-ish it's no surprise that david refers to her father by his first name hugh as opposed to mr butterfield Jade's older and younger brothers argue over silverware placement until their mother is coming down the stairs. She asks David to cover his eyes because she has a surprise outfit on just for him. Again, he refers to Jade's mother as Anne instead of Mrs. Butterfield, and she's wearing a blue silk robe. She masks her face with a fan, and I think she has chopsticks in her hair. She claims the thrift store told her the new robe was 2,000 years old. (laughs) Everyone's very impressed with how beautiful it looks. They already seem like a fun family with a really interesting sense of humor. Hugh requests wine from the pantry, and David and Jade head to retrieve it. They kiss for a moment in the pantry until they're shouted back to the table with the wine. That night, they recite poems to each other over drinks by candlelight. Wine comes in at the mouth. (laughs) And love comes in at the eye. And that's all we know for truth before we grow old and die. I lift my glass to my mouth. I look at you. You? (laughs) And I sigh. Suddenly they hear a novelty car horn honking outside. Where's that riffraff out there? It's Keith's girlfriend Susan here with her band. The band lugs in all their instruments, and the Butterfields are surprisingly cool with all these random teenagers showing up. You get the impression that these are the dreaded cool parents that care more about high school kids liking them than their kids do. Keith introduces his mother to girlfriend Susan while the band sets up. We cut upstairs to Hugh's office where David and Jade are making out in the dark until Keith busts in. He needs David's help setting up. Well, he's busy right now. Yeah, I see. You know, Babby doesn't like us bringing people in there. David is not people. He's part of the family. Hmm. Well, Pappy wants his trumpet. Bring it down when you're finished playing doctor, please. Somehow there are now 50 people downstairs, including some fully balding adults. All are passing joints and drinks around when Hugh pipes up on the trumpet. He quickly captures the attention of the room with his skills. When Hugh is done with his part, Keith coaxes girlfriend Susan on stage to sing a song. It was here that I noticed one of the kids in the crowd is wearing a shirt with a Warner Brothers logo, which is weird because this is a Universal movie and was never intended as a Warner Brothers release. But it's a cool shirt. It's like that W in the bubble writing. Yeah, I I saw saw it It was the guy standing on the stairs. Yeah, it's it's not the S.H.I.E.L.D. logo. It's the W logo, like from the beginning of The Shining, I think. It's black and white instead of red. Yeah, I I know the exact logo you're talking about. I noticed here that the living room is full of signs that read Sammy for 8th grade president, Sammy being Jade's younger brother, played by a baby-faced Ian Ziering. Who's Ian Ziering? 90210. Yeah, Beverly Hills 90210. Oh. David makes his way halfway up the stairs just as Susan begins to sing the film's theme song. My love, there's only you in my life, the only thing that's right. Jade is sitting in her father's lap with his hands wrapped around her when she notices David waiting on the stairs. She and her father exchange pecks on the cheek as she stands to approach David. 
Her mother Anne and brother Keith both follow her path across the room with their eyes, somehow understanding the significance of what's happening between them. David sits on the stairs and she nuzzles in against his chest for the rest of the song. We cut to the aftermath of the party, where Jade and David are helping clean up the living room. Hugh enters and is weirdly upset to find fire burning in the fireplace because apparently that's something he's taken ownership of. It's like the thermostat. Right. We were freezing, Pappy. I'm in charge of the fireplace here. Anne and Hugh head to bed and David promises to leave when the fire has burned out to avoid a disaster. This comment gives us a chance to observe the extreme flammability of their entire wicker living room set. <laughs> well, but it was exactly the one thing on my mind, like let alone like him being whatever, head of household and in charge of the fire. But I'm just like, a couple of kids, little fire in the fireplace. Do you think they're actually going to be responsible enough to put this thing out? Yeah, they're going to sit here and wait for it. With her parents upstairs, Jade and David embrace for a kiss and Jade whispers a plan in his ear. They both speak loudly about how it's probably time David headed home. But he just promised to stay till it burned down. I know, this but is now hours away. <laughs> but now he's making her in charge of that. Yeah, but she's she's pretending to head upstairs. That's true. She this is. This really really bothered me because I'm like, that's a shitty plan. You guys plan. just said you just told your parents that you're going to stay up with this fire, and now you're not. <laughs> yeah. They both talk loudly about how it's probably time David headed home since they both have tests to take tomorrow implying that this was a school night party, which is all the more impressive. They say they're exaggerated good nights, and Jade flips off a light before we hear David open and close the front door. As Jade continues up the steps toward her room, we see that David was just making sound effects, but didn't actually leave. He begins undressing by the fireplace, in full view of anyone who wants to look down from the top yeah. of the stairs. Why don't they just go up to her room? I don't know. Or his car. they have car. to watch the fireplace. Oh, that's right, the fireplace. <laughs> But they were pretending not to watch the fireplace. I know. It's stupid. <laughs> In their bedroom, Anne and Hugh lay side by side. Anne is reading a book that David gifted her, and Hugh makes fun of her for liking him so much. Downstairs, David waits in the glow of the fire, but it's not actually flickering on him, so this is probably an orange light in the fireplace just off camera. He's breathing heavily as he sees Jade come down the stairs in a silk robe. They sit together on the living room floor and stare at each other for a moment. David kisses her back onto a pile of pillows, and sometime later, Anne is awoken in her bedroom by a sound downstairs. She sneaks out from under the sleeping hue to investigate. From the top of the stairs looking down, she spots David and Jade making love on the floor, and immediately ducks behind the stair railing and turns away, but her curiosity gets the better of her, and she watches them for a moment. A smile crosses her face as she observes a clear love between them, and she seems to remember her own youthful love. I think all of this is coming across in her performance, too. Yeah, absolutely. She slowly returns to her room, where we see her pacing excitedly. The next day, David is riding his bike around town with Jade sitting on his crossbar. We get a quick shot of David's father coming out of a building, walking to his car, when he notices David riding by. David and Jade wave hi to him as they pass, and Mr. Axelrod seems dumbfounded by his son's girlfriend's beauty. Or maybe he just appreciates his son's happiness in general. I was very anxious watching this entire movie. Because I read... it starts with her saying, what would you do if I died? Well, there was that. But also I read ahead to the trivia and it talked about a stuntman involving a car. And I was like, oh man, now I was just waiting for it. Every yeah. every every time they're like on a street or like, oh, this is, this is it. Yeah. Here it comes. <laughs> we cut back to the Butterfield place where Anne is working away on a typewriter. David steps into her office to tell her that he's read the article that she wrote for The Atlantic. And he'd love to discuss it with her sometime. See, I already don't like David. 
He's trying too hard. He's trying way too hard. He he wants to be everyone's best friend. Yeah. And it's just like it, it's it's weird and it's kind of gross. But it's, to her credit, she's too smart to be flattered by this. Yeah. But everything he does too makes it feel like he's been around forever. Yeah. And and he really hasn't. I no. feel like he's it, like this is like maybe a month old relationship. Yeah. She understands that David's just trying to make a good impression with everyone in the family, and she comes right out with the accusation. You don't have to court us all. He seems a bit embarrassed to be caught. Tomorrow he's returning at 5 a.m. to go hunting with Hugh and Keith, a trip he apparently invited himself on, and she tells David not to try too hard to win Keith over. David leans forward to give Anne a goodnight kiss on the cheek. The next day we see them hunting together, and David again is laying it on pretty thick. Hugh shoots a duck out of the sky, and David loudly applauds his skill. Keith points to an old dilapidated shack that his grandfather built and that his father has since ignored. Keith plans to return it to its former glory, and David says he'll help since it'd be a great place for the whole family to have. Just because you're fucking my sister doesn't make you part of the family. We cut back to the Butterfield house as Anne and Hugh are returning home from a movie. Hugh is halfway up the stairs when he notices David, buck naked, through the doorway to Jade's room. Jade walks by wrapped in a towel and says goodnight to her father before closing the door. Yeah, I was just like, what are you doing standing there with the door wide open? You don't first? hear the front door open, first of all? Even even if you knew no one was home, I wouldn't just have the door to the room open. Yeah, especially since the brothers are not with the parents, meaning they could come in at any time, too. I don't even walk around my own house naked when I'm alone. I like, do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. Am I the only person you, you who does ar- that here? You walk around the house naked when yeah. she's alone? sometimes I'll take the trash cans out naked. <laughs> it's the only time he's allowed to be naked. <laughs> when I'm taking the trash out? No, when I'm alone. <laughs> oh, okay. That makes sense. Jade walks by wrapped in a towel and says goodnight to her father before closing the door, but it's too late. He's clearly seen David, and David barely notices in time to shuffle out of the door frame. Cut to Patrick Stewart. It's too late because I've already seen everything. <laughs> <laughs> Hugh is quietly enraged by David's nude presence in his daughter's room. Inside, David is horrified, but Jade doesn't seem worried at all. Downstairs, Hugh tells Anne what he just walked in on, and she admits she's known about them for a while, even spilling the beans unnecessarily that David often spends the night only leaving early in the morning. Anne suggests that the door was carelessly left open because they wanted to get caught, which is explored further in the book, where Jade wants to rub the open-mindedness of her parents in her face by being very obnoxious about everything. Hugh is furious that his daughter is already sexually active, and Anne points out that it's a logical consequence of raising the children in their bohemian lifestyle with all their frank discussions of sex. What's particularly disgusting about this scene is that Hugh is clearly jealous of the guy having sex with his daughter. Yeah, but I got hints of that when, like, they were... You know, cuddling cudd- during yeah, the, yeah, by, by the fireplace yeah. and then you know there was this transition moment where he you know lost out to the other guy right and yeah it's, it's like it's watching a nature creepy. documentary when like yeah. the lion moves on from the pride to meet her mate he accuses david of completely taking over their lives when up until a second ago he didn't even know any of this was going on he switches tactics to insisting that jade deserves better and Anne mocks him for expecting to choose a suitor for her. Oh, I didn't realize we were saving her for somebody special. Oh. Then we get some badly ADR dialogue. Yeah. To fix that, on set, they seem to be referring to Jade as a 16-year-old girl, but in the book, she's 15. Are we saving her for someone rich? God damn it! That's not fair! The girl is 15 years old! Now, when is she going to study? When is she going to sleep? 
for some reason assuming that sex will take every waking hour of her day, though we do see her suffer a bit in class the next day, passing out at her desk. The book makes a bigger deal of her problems in school, but in the film, we see David helping her with her homework as often as she struggles in class. That night, we see David working on homework in his room when his dad pops in to check on how he's doing. He asks about Jade and reminds his son that school doesn't really matter as much as the memories that he'll form during this time in his life. It's refreshing, though confusing, that David's attorney parents put literally zero pressure on his academics. I think the point of putting these scenes next to each other is meant to contrast Jade's father's hypocritical open-mindedness against David's father's genuine care about his son's happiness. Well, and yeah, that that the, the, the people who are, you know, more traditional are actually less strict. Right. It seems weird to ignore the part that 1980s gender roles play, though, because if Hugh walked in on Keith and Susan fucking, he wouldn't give two shits, and it would probably be Susan's parents freaking out. Just as David's father is leaving the room, Jade calls David for help with her French homework. It seems like she's only been on the phone for 30 seconds, when suddenly Keith barges into her room to complain that she's had the phone line tied up for an hour. I don't know if there was supposed to be a time jump here, or she's been calling a lot of people. Jade finishes the call in French, and then gives her brother the phone. Later that night, David rides his bike over to the Butterfield house and sneaks into Jade's room to kiss her while she sleeps at her desk. He lifts her and spins her around the room on the way to the bed. We cut directly to after the sex, and they lie naked on the bed looking up at the stars painted on Jade's ceiling. He tells her he'll name a star after her. Whenever we see his room, it's decorated with the faces of astronomers mm -hmm. and planets and stuff like that, mm -hmm. so clearly he has some interest in astronomy, but it's never spoken out loud. She asks David if her boobs are too small or if her eyes are too close together, and he assures her she is perfect. When I'm wrinkled and fat, you'll stop loving me. C'est la vie. I'll never stop loving you. You can't say that. You don't know. Yes, I do. I knew that from the very first. It looks like David's kept her up all night, and the sun is rising in the bedroom. Jade is on the bed, lit in orange, and David is above her in shadow, still in the blue of the night. She asks him to leave so she can get some sleep, but he can't bear to go, and we get this awkward shot of him lying completely on top of her, with his full weight on her, while they both pass out. In the morning, Hugh hears a door close downstairs, and he steps to the window in time to see David ride his bike away. Suddenly, he hears the door to his office creaking open, and he catches Jade, trying to sneak some of his sleeping pills. He explodes with anger, justifiably, because in the wrong doses Jade could easily kill herself, although Anne does point out that the pills should be locked up and out of reach of their children. Hugh tells Jade that David can't come over anymore, because not only can she not get any sleep, but Hugh claims that they're keeping everyone else up too. This comes across as an exaggeration based on his jealousy though, because as we've seen it, their lovemaking has been fairly quiet except for the orchestral music. <laughs> I don't think that's playing in the house. Jade rejects the notion that her father can decide who stays in her room at night, but both of them have completely lost it. Jade can barely put two words together through her sobbing, and Hugh forbids even seeing David. When Keith points out that she'll still see him at school, Hugh suggests pulling her out of school and sending her off to live with her uncle. That's not going to solve your problem, Hugh. There's boys at the uncle school, too. <laughs> I mean, I think that he's specifically upset about this one. Yeah. He claims that ever since David showed up, his whole family has turned against him, but this is really only the second argument we've seen since he found out about their relationship. We cut to David showing up at the Butterfield house the next day, and Hugh and Keith out front give him the cold shoulder. When he tries to enter the house, Hugh advises against it. He tells David that he isn't welcome here until school is out 30 days from now. David is similarly dumbfounded 
at this once cool dad laying down some rules. We get another ADR patch to adjust Jade's age. Jade is my daughter. She's only 15 years old. I don't know. I guess I guess in some places, 16, this is perfectly acceptable. Yeah, I think that was a part of the problem, too, that Frank is always like, this isn't even risque. Yeah. I guess we'll make her 15. Well, yeah, and even I mean, that it, it is, depends, like, not yeah, enough. It because, certainly depends on the, the place that you're at. because like, I, I'm, And David's 17 in the story, so they're not even... It's still not illegal, 15 it's and 17. It's not illegal, yeah. But, I mean, there's definitely places where 16 is absolutely, like, an age of consent. She could do whatever she wants. Yeah. So she's yeah. legally allowed to. David tries to enter the house to speak with Jade against her father's wishes, and the two nearly come to blows when Anne intervenes, sending Hugh into the house so she can speak with David privately. She takes his hand and leads David across the porch to where they can chat. She urges him to accept Hugh's terms for the interest of everyone. You say a month? 30 days. Fine, 30 days. It's not such a long time. You have finals, you have graduation. Jade has her exam. Oh my God. I am sounding like a mother. Don't inflict that on me, please. I always hate when characters like these have near adult children who still haven't come to terms with the facts that they are parents. Like anyone who's like, oh God, I sounded like a mom right there. And it's like, yeah, you have a 15 year old kid. Yeah. You've been a mom for a decade and a half. And Keith is older. Right. It reminds me of middle-aged crazy last season when Bruce Dern decides it's time to start being a father when his son tells him that he's expecting his own son. Yeah. Impossibly, Anne promises David that things between him and Jade will be the same at the end of 30 days. The next day at school, Jade and David share longing glances but keep their distance. At home, David stares at Jade's framed photo all day, and at school, Jade finds herself looking for him everywhere, not realizing that he's watching her just out of sight. In the library later... David hears Keith tell a friend about a party tonight and that his sister broke up with David so she's totally available. Weird to hear a brother trying to pimp his sister out to friends Yeah. after how it backfired last time especially. Well, and, and he doesn't seem to like, he, he seems almost offended when earlier when he said, just because you're fucking my sister. Right. This is like, do you want guys fucking your sister? Or yeah. No. The typical response to, hey, is your sister going to be at the party is, fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're supposed to say. We cut to David chatting with two idiot friends at soccer practice. The first one suggests that he kidnap Jade or burn her house down as revenge. And the second tells a story about how he tried that once because he was a pyromaniac as a kid. He attempted to set fire to a pile of wet newspapers, but they wouldn't take. The actor playing the child arsonist is the first feature film appearance of a young Tom Cruise. Still managed to get his shirt off. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's been in the contract since day one. I don't know. He was. I didn't. I didn't catch it on the on the the first watch through. Like. Yeah, he, we had to back it up. He looks a little weird. I lit a whole pile of newspapers. You ever try to light a whole pile of wet newspapers? Jeez, it smokes like crazy. I got real scared. See, but you want to hear the wild part? It's like I'm a hero or something. They thought I saved the whole block. <laughs> David can't decide which friend's advice to take, so he opts for a bit of both. <laughs> Back at David's home that night, his mother can't get any work done because he's blasting rock ballads in his room. David's dad comes to his defense, insisting that this thing with Jade is none of their business. David's mother brings up the rumors she's heard about the Butterfield home and their scandalous parties. Yeah, because they're self-identified as socialists? Right. They're socialist attorneys. They probably work for the ACLU. Is that even a thing in the 1980s? <laughs> Wasn't the ACLU the, the group that fought for the Nazis' right to do the nazi parade in chicago that we discussed in the Gosh, blues brothers review 
didn't realize how long ago it started. It started in the 1920s. Oh, there you go. David overhears their criticisms of the Butterfield family. You've never even met them. Well, thank God I haven't, because if I had, you I would have had something to say to them. Good or bad, at least they're a family. I mean, they talk to each other. They listen to one another. Oh, come on, not at all. They not like to do things together. Which isn't really fair to his father here, because it seems like he's been attentive and supportive so far. And also appears to be not true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, they're not being very supportive. Rose tells her son to go live with the Butterfields if he loves them so much. We cut to... <clears throat> <laughs> the classic, classic adult response. Yeah. Oh, if you love them so much, why don't you marry them? It's like, <laughs> I don't know if you've been paying attention, Mom. I just said that I'm not allowed to go there for the next month. <laughs> we cut to David walking across town at night toward the Butterfield home, smoking a cigarette. David watches the crowded party from across the street. He creeps up to the windows to look inside and sees the kid from the library flirting with Jade in the kitchen. Not her brother, the other kid. The boy follows her from room to room, settling in the living room, where we see cool dad Hugh smoking a cigarette and then blowing the smoke into a random party guest's mouth so that she can blow it out into the room. I'm sure it wasn't a cigarette. Or a joint, whatever. He's kissing a girl in their living room and blowing smoke into her mouth. Well, I think this is showing, because, I mean, we're showing little glimpses into the fractures of their marriage. I guess. So I'm sure this is another hint at that. Just general cool parent stuff. Anne is standing right behind him as this happens and doesn't react at all. David just sits there watching his girlfriend enjoy another man's company, crushed. David has seen all he can stomach and wanders back into the night. He puts in a phone call to the house, hoping to speak with Jade, but Keith warns everyone against answering the phone, assuming it's angry neighbors or something. After a while, David gives up and returns to the house to watch everybody leave. Last out the door are Jade and the guy who's been hitting on her all night. He goes in for a kiss, but Jade backs away and sends the guy home. David sneaks up to the porch and tries to call to Jade through the front door, but she doesn't hear him. He even knocks on the front window to get her attention, but it's no use. He knows which room she's in. Yeah. Like, can't you do the old pebble against the window trick? Or just walk into the house like you did last time and just kiss her while she's sleeping, you weirdo. Well, he's been banned. Yeah, but he wasn't allowed in the house when he did that before. Yeah. But now there's like a, like some kind of like... Force field. Force field. There's like a layer of brick dust well, across yeah, the front door. He's a vampire. <laughs> he, he wasn't explicitly told not to do this is that Is that vampire law? If you're not invited. explicitly invited, then you... <laughs> Then you can't come in, but I'm just I'm just saying, like it it wasn't they they didn't lay out rules before. Now right. they laid out a rule, and he's respecting these rules for some reason, Apparently. and then no rules for the rest of the movie. Well, we'll also come to find out that the door is locked. Right. When David turns to leave, he notices a stack of newspapers sitting on a chair on the porch. <laughs> it can't be coincidence. This is a sign. Yeah, it's like wait, why are there just a big pile of newspapers out here? Because these people are famously uninformed. <laughs> The delivery boy just keeps throwing papers. He's just got excellent aim. They're just landing perfectly on top of each other. They even look a little wet like the ones Tom Cruise described. But just to be safe, he fills a bucket with water to wet the newspapers further and then moves to light them on fire. It was like a three-foot stack of newspapers. Yeah. One bucket of water over the top of it. It's not going to soak yeah. them. It's just going to get the outside wet and that's it. <laughs> Once they get going, he walks away from the house and down the street. He watches from a distance as the smoke is billowing now. He walks away again, and upon returning a third time, the porch is glowing orange from the fire, and he realizes he must do something. Unfortunately, David is not a skilled firefighter, so his efforts include swinging pillows to spread the burning newspapers across the porch and kicking over a flaming chair. 
Remember the water bucket? How about go <laughs> fill that up? Maybe toss that on some of this stuff. Water's the worst thing you could throw on oh, a newspaper fire. Wait, I don't think that's true. <laughs> this isn't oil. It's newspapers. Instead, he pounds screaming on the door for Jade and then breaks open a window to unlock the door himself. Inside, he informs the Butterfield that their home is on fire and they'll have to leave out the back door. Hugh and Keith are still upstairs and he rushes everyone else out of the house. David circles back upstairs to get Keith, but Keith doesn't know what's going on and he's furious to see David here knocking him to the floor and seemingly unconscious. Hugh finds Keith and tells him to get out of the house before noticing David on the floor and carrying him out over his shoulder. Everyone watches from the yard as the whole house goes up in flames, all their family photos and belongings. We cut directly to a courthouse where Judge J.W. Rogers is reading out David's sentence. David has apparently pled guilty to arson. Yeah, I... I don't I don't get this. He totally foiled the plan, the... the Tom Cruise spelled it out for you. You take credit yeah. for putting out the fire or trying to put out the fire and rescuing everyone. I don't think anybody would believe that coincidence, though. Maybe not. But but they probably wouldn't it, have evidence against him. Yeah. But I don't think anybody would believe that he just happened to be there at the right time. Yeah. But then again, you might because, Couldn't he, because yeah, he's obsessed. He, he, he he's would just obsessed be like, "Well, I just it. sat there and and watched your house because I wasn't invited to the party, and one of the kids from your party threw a cigarette." Yeah. On your pile of newspapers, and when I noticed that everything had gone up in flames, I came and got you guys. On your carelessly placed newspapers. Yeah. Maybe read these. The judge is deciding between 20 years of jail or a psychiatric evaluation. I am sentencing him to five years probation. That's ridiculous. On the understanding that he enter a psychiatric facility approved by the court. Ridiculous thing I've ever heard in my life. Mr. Butterfield storms angrily from the courtroom. Part of his sentence dictates that David is not allowed to communicate with any member of the Butterfield family moving forward, in perpetuity. Doing so would represent a violation of his parole, and he would be sent to prison to serve the remainder of his sentence there. We cut to a psych ward, where David is awoken in the night by the sound of a fellow patient crying. The boy's name is Leonard, and David tries to help until a nurse enters. She offers David a pill to get back to sleep, and then more medicine is forced on Leonard to keep him from crying. In bed... David conjures up memories of Jade. This psychiatric hospital is all decked out in Christmas decorations, which I'm sure Richard appreciated. <laughs> you hate random Christmas movies. No, I hate movies that take place during... This is like a montage. It's okay if it's a montage to indicate that time, time has Time is passing. Okay. Spanning time. Yeah. We're spanning time. It's from Buffalo 66. David writes a letter to Jade and presents it to the hospital staff, expecting them to mail it. I never seem to find the time to write letters. Well, you should. It's really important, you know. Otherwise, a person could go crazy in a place like this. We cut to a visit from David's mother. She says the doctors have seen improvement, but he just repeatedly tells her that he wants to leave. Yeah. David tells her that he suspects that she and his father are having marital problems, since they seem to visit separately, but she denies anything is the matter. Later on, we see David sitting by himself in a common room when he's reminded of an upcoming therapy session and chooses to skip it for apparently the fourth week in a row. What is he even doing here? Yeah. Yeah, it's weird that they would even allow that because yeah. it's part of his, you know, rehabilitation. You would think. Mm -hmm. He starts hearing Jade's voice in his head. What would you do if I died? I'd die. I don't he dreams about kissing Jade in bed, but suddenly in the dream he's replaced with that guy from the party. He screams out to the Jade in his dream. Jade, no! 
Another day, we see David turning in another letter to Jade and getting nothing in return. A montage of letters going out and nothing coming in. This time, after he walks away, we see the nurse deliver the letter to David's doctor instead of a post office. <laughs> Not that she would do that herself. Right, yeah. Later, in the common room again, we see a patient getting mirror therapy. He's shown his own reflection and asked to identify himself. David decides to conduct his own mirror therapy and step to his reflection in a different mirror. But he suddenly notices Jade standing behind him in the reflection and screams out to her. Clearly, he he's is, doing great. Yeah, it's just like, <laughs> this is why you shouldn't skip your therapy, my friend. Right. Or because, your medication. Yeah, because you are a psychopath. But the moment he turns around, she's gone, and the entire room is startled by his outburst. We cut to the next visit from David's parents, they're here together this time, and he's telling them both that he thinks he's going crazy because of the medicine and the treatments here, even though we've seen that he's not engaging in the treatment here. Yeah. Yeah, but I feel like that's pretty typical, too, that even if you're not crazy, going into a place like this will make you crazy. Yeah, it's not going to help. But, but again, David is a manipulator. Right. And and he manipulates people. And and to me, this whole thing is him just trying to manipulate his parents. To get him out. To get him out. Because they're attorneys. And uh, when he's walking around with them, like Leonard is standing there. And yeah. he flips out on Leonard. But I kept getting confused because Leonard looks just too much like Keith. I think it's on purpose because oh, they want it? us to draw the comparison. Well, I thought you were going to say that he looks too much like David. And uh, the comparison is just uh, that we can see so easily him becoming this other person. No, because w- well, like when he's arguing and he says, what are you doing there? And a camera pans over there. I was like, is that Keith? Yeah. And, and then he starts beating him up. I was like, oh, no, it's Leonard. But yeah, I was like, God, this is the second time I confused Keith for Leonard or yeah. Leonard for Keith. But yeah, when he crosses paths with Leonard, he shows them what Leonard is like, and he thinks that he's turning into this kid. And he starts shaking him around, and then he tackles him into the rain. Yeah, and just starts beating on him. It's like, yeah, we should get our son out of here. He yeah. seems like he's yeah, perfectly he's stable. <laughs> Look! Look at him! You want to take him home? Well, that's what you got to take home! Cut to, they have, they have Leonard. <laughs> they have Welcome home, like, Leonard. Yeah, which is better. <laughs> he's never burned down a house before. <laughs> That's not our son. That's Hans Mole, man. In this same outburst from David, we learn that he's been in this facility for two years now. I didn't realize two years had gone by. He finally breaks through to his parents, though, and they think he needs to be released from this place, too. Luckily, they're both high-powered attorneys, and we cut right to them arriving home with him. A condition of his release is that he would stay in the city of Chicago, but apparently the Butterfields are no longer here, so his mother feels confident they can avoid violating the terms. You shouldn't have to stay in the city. You should have to stay at home. Right. It should be under house arrest. Yeah. David and his father have another heart-to-heart in his room. Dad says that he should take it easy this weekend, but that things will get easier. David's father mentions that he only saw Jade once when they were riding their bike through the city, and he understands David's infatuation. I only saw her once. You were together on your bicycle, and she waved at me. I'll remember that picture for the rest of my life. Dad slips up and mentions that the family moved to New York before presenting David with all the letters he wrote in the asylum. Turns out none of them were ever mailed because it was a condition of his sentence that he not communicate with the family. Yeah. Of course they wouldn't be. But why Why give them back to him? Why? Yeah. yeah. This seems pointless. And, and, Just yeah. let him think that she didn't write back. Yeah. I mean, like, I think it's better if he thinks she got him and didn't write back than to be like, by the way, 
she maybe still loves you. Here's your yeah. stack of letters yeah. that never went to her. Well, at first I thought that they were letters from her. Oh, it's God, like, that would be so much wow. worse. Yeah, that's what I thought. I was like, oh, my God, she's been writing to him this whole time. Because <laughs> I was like, wait, why would the doctors give, give him the letters? Give yeah, the letters they should be back. burning these as soon yeah. as he gets them. Yeah, it's, it's like, like read them for hints, like, is he, is he self-harming yeah, and then yeah, burn them? Exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, it would be helpful to them as their therapy, but it is a federal offense, I guess, to open other people's mail. So Is it mail if it hasn't been put in a mailbox yet? I don't know. Is it just a piece of paper that someone handed you with a stamp <laughs> on it? <laughs> it seems like that's blatantly mail if it's got a legal stamp on it. Right, right. But, like, prisons are allowed to read outgoing mail, right? They, they are. Uh, outgoing and incoming for certain, yeah. Yeah. So but maybe like, the rules are different for... But but he was put there, he's being held there as part of his punishment. So that's I, true. So it might be a maybe. similar thing. Seems like asylums have a lot of wide-reaching rules where they're allowed to do whatever they want to people i also don't like this conversation with the dad because he's like telling him that you'll get over your first love and then he goes by the way i'm in love with somebody right now and i feel great <laughs> well i think that's his point though is that is that he's like i found a new love and i'm an old man so it's you're gonna have plenty of chances to find a new love moving forward but that this is also basically him admitting that he and his mother have split up right they kept it from him while he was in the hospital so that he would believe he had a family to return to. We cut to the psychiatric ward where Mr. Butterfield is arguing with the administrators about David's early release. He doesn't think David's been punished at all for burning his house to the ground. So he flew all the way back? Yeah, from New York. From New York? Yeah. Just to yell at this guy with Keith. Right. And then flew Fly all back. the way back Yeah. To New York. <laughs> he just had this one quick temper tantrum. <laughs> That is weird. <laughs> I didn't consider the fact that they lived states away when this happened. Yeah. This, was, this should have been a phone call. Yeah. What's going to satisfy you? Putting that boy in jail the rest of his life? Oh, my oh I want to tell you something. If that kid comes near me or anybody in my family ever again, I'll kill him. We cut to David wandering the streets of New York in clear violation of his parole agreement. He rings a doorbell on apartment 7G, sector 7G. <laughs> But Mrs. Butterfield answers. She's obviously shocked to see him and invites him in. It's just Anne living here now. She's separated from Hugh, but occasionally the kids visit. Stupidly, she asks what he's doing in the city, and even stupidlier, he <laughs> pretends he's here to see her. Yeah. <laughs> she doesn't buy it for a second, and even mentions that Hugh predicted David would try this. Hugh predicted that you would find me and get in touch. And I should have been the hardest. Oh, damn him. He is clairvoyant sometimes. What does that mean, I should have been the hardest? I guess that she would have been the hardest to find. But it I don't know why. It doesn't seem like he I, had any trouble. Like, yeah, I, I guess because Hugh's a prominent doctor, and she, we don't know exactly what she does. She's a writer. Yeah, but writers are known for being... Other you know, things well, to keep the lights reclusive? on. <laughs> Reclu reclusive, yeah. I mean... Yeah. You know, the doctor, he probably has a practice that's advertised. You Maybe, know, be yeah. Easy to find. David and Anne head out to a nearby restaurant for dinner and drinks, and she catches him up on their lives, which seems like a terrible idea. Yeah. I don't know why she's being so forgiving well, of him. Because she has the hot spot. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's creepy, though. But again, he's manipulating her. He keeps pouring her wine, trying to get information, because she keeps letting information slip yeah. about where Jade is. Mm. Hugh has a new girlfriend in New Jersey, and they visit often. She's already good friends with Anne's children. What's her name? Ingrid? Ingrid Archester, a citizen of Jupiter. She drives a van, believes in an astrological explanation for everything. 
she lives in the stars. I tried looking up Citizen of Jupiter, but I couldn't find a specific reference. I assume she's just spacey or zodiac obsessed. Anne and David continue sharing wine late into the night, even back at her apartment. David asks to read an article that she mentioned she wrote about him. It isn't just about you. It's about you and Jade and me. It's about a time I saw the two of you making love. She confesses to how she saw them that first time, as she tells him the sight of them renewed her faith in love and invites David to sit next to her on the couch. She confesses further that when she went back to bed with Hugh that night, that she pictured herself with David. Then she says an even weirder thing. You know, they thought we were lovers, you and I. Did they? Maybe we should have done them a favor of making them right. Who is she talking about here? Yeah. Yeah. Did anyone think that she and David were an item, or is she just making this up as a pickup line? Well, I think we suspected Hugh thought this, and then I guess maybe Keith, but... I don't get that impression ever from anything that they say, other than he points at the book and he's like, oh, you really like this David kid, huh? Not like, I bet you're fucking him behind my back. Yeah, I don't know. Was that... You didn't get to read the book, right? Not all of it, no. Yeah. Just wondering if there's more to that. She goes in for a kiss, and David grips her arms and pushes her back on the couch before apologizing. He tells her that Jade is the only girl he can ever make love to, and Anne seems impressed with the focus of his affection. Anne invites David to stay the night here, since he doesn't have another place lined up. Now, I would be frightened by this person. Yeah. She thinks it's romantic, though. To be obsessed with her daughter? Yeah, even though she clearly wants to fuck him right now, she still thinks it's cute that he is so singularly obsessed with her daughter. That he burned their house down mm-hmm. and won't... I mean, clearly he wasn't trying to burn the house down. <laughs> right. I don't I don't know that they would know that. <laughs> what would be his motivation to burn the house down? I understand he's setting it on fire and then putting it out to yeah, save them. Yeah, he's a psycho. Maybe. I guess, yeah. If you're just going to say he's a crazy person, there's no explanation for anything he does. And we don't get any hints, though, from her the mother about what jade's point of view on this whole thing is right like it seems like she's specifically avoiding yeah Mm -hmm. i mean and and as far as we've been able to tell jade has made no attempt at all to contact him right and she confirms that later when ann steps out of the room to collect blankets for david he rifles through an address book on her coffee table and copies down jade's current address I'm wondering if she left that there on purpose. Why would your address book be on your coffee table in the middle of the room? I thought it was on a desk on the side of the yeah, room. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't say that it would be out in the open, but at the same time, she lives alone. Sure. And it just seems careless, but maybe she's drunk enough that she wouldn't notice that she left it out. I mean, it, I think that your desk is a perfectly normal place for your address book. Yeah. Anne warns David not to show up unannounced because she never knows when Hugh and Ingrid are going to be in town. Jade lives in Burlington, Vermont, and we cut right to David checking the bus schedule to Vermont. David smiles wide as he walks to the bus depot, ecstatic to be on his way to see Jade. But suddenly, we see Hugh and Ingrid come out of a nearby building. David stops to enjoy some street meat outside Rockefeller Plaza, looking up at the spires of St. Patrick's Cathedral, appearing in their second consecutive movie for the podcast, after their background cameo during the Rockefeller roof garden scene in Arthur last week, released the same day in theaters. I'm glad you didn't ask me when the last time we saw them was, or what the last movie we reviewed was. Yeah, it's been a week. (laughs) Unfortunately for both, David and Hugh lock eyes across Fifth Street, and Hugh's rage takes control of him. He darts out into traffic 
and is struck by a passing cab, and it's a pretty brutal stunt. Yeah. There's a heavy blood spray in the air as Hugh flips up into the sky. Was this the one that you read about? Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I, but it didn't say who it was. It just it just referred to uh, a, an impressive stunt that was done with a car crash. Yeah. And it's someone getting hit by a car. And so the whole movie, I'm like... Yeah. Oh man! Every time they go into a street, I'm yeah. like, "This is it." Because this but, is pretty. This is like really close to the end of the movie, so you're yeah. just on edge the yeah. entire time. Yeah, <laughs> and it's a phenomenal crash, though. I, oh, I yeah. and I stepped through it frame by frame just to see exactly how bad it is, and it's not that bad when you're stepping through it. But with the sound and everything that they add to it, it just looks brutal, especially yeah. with the big spray in the mm. air when his head connects with the top corner of the car. Ugh. Ingrid is immediately by his side, sobbing and begging for help from the police. She's also grabbed the arm of a seemingly uninvolved passerby, David, and looks deep into his eyes, desperate for some reassurance that things will be okay. Why David is still here? Oh my god! I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Why he doesn't second... go immediately buy a shirt? Yeah. <laughs> I don't well, know. He's yeah. worn this shirt the whole movie. But he wanders closer to the accident from the sidewalk where right. he was standing. I'm well, just I like, think he I wanted would, to know what happened. I would book it out of there <laughs> i don't think he he was thinking clearly oh, but i also yeah. don't think that ingrid is thinking clearly enough to commit anyone's face to memory in this yeah. situation <laughs> but a giant 33 yeah that's sure we'll that's remember. helpful we cut to the bus station as the bus for burlington pulls away but david is crying so hard that he doesn't even get on it it doesn't really matter because jade won't have been in burlington when he got there he returns to ann's apartment and she answers the door in tears probably best that he didn't get on the bus because he would get there and she wouldn't be there and he would try to light her dorm on fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like, I killed your 37 roommates. I'm sorry. <laughs> he returns to Anne's apartment and she answers the door in tears. She's heard the news and relays it to David while he pretends to be hearing it for the first time. She invites David inside and things get uncomfortable very quick because Ingrid and Keith are here. Bizarrely, David makes no effort to hide from Ingrid, the only person in a position to tie him to the accident. Keith can't wrap his head around why David would possibly show up now of all times. And and why David is continuing to stay upon the site of Ingrid. Yeah. Like, go. go. Get out of here what, immediately. What, what what do you think is going to... You know what this is? is? This is what this exactly is. There's like a an old like kind of concept test of of a psychopath where it's a funeral and this woman sees this gorgeous guy at a funeral and... And wants to know who he is, but he can't. She can't figure it out. So she kills another family member in hopes that, that he'll come to the next. That funeral. he'll come to the next funeral. Uh, that's what to me. That is what he's doing right now. He knows that Jade is going to return here. So he's hanging around. So he's hanging Ugh. around. Yes, yeah. he is a nutcase. I really hate him. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell is he doing here? David was in town. He came to see me, Keith. I don't understand this. Did she tell you? My father's dead. David says he'd like to talk to Keith, which is like he's completely tone deaf here. Like Keith is being very confrontational with you right now. And he's like, Keith, great. I wanted to have a chat. <laughs> Keith sees this for what it is, an opportunity to take emotional advantage of people who can connect him to Jade. Keith tells David that Jade hates him now and he might as well go home forever. But Anne convinces him to take a room at the Ivanhoe on the wrong side of town. Anne will call Jade and she'll come here. Ingrid catches a glimpse of David with Anne in the doorway, and it lingers for a moment. David gives Anne the pile of letters to Jade that the hospital wouldn't deliver, hoping that she'll do what they refuse to. As David walks out of the building, he takes a seat in the lobby, 
and then notices Jade crossing the lobby to the elevator. If Anne just called her, I don't understand how she's here already. Is this the same day of the accident? Yeah, I Is this think like so. a couple hours later? How is she here already? She doesn't notice him as she steps into the elevator to head upstairs. We cut back to the Axelrod home, where parents Arthur and Rose are reunited in their efforts to locate son David. Evidently, he left them a note promising to return on Sunday, but the deadline has come and gone, and he's in violation of his parole somewhere outside the court-ordered boundary of Chicago. David hears a knock at his door and opens it to find Jade standing there. He's shocked to see her here and doesn't speak, inviting her in wordlessly. Eventually, he asks if she hates him like Keith said, and she denies that. She apologizes for never writing or trying to reach out to his family. She returns the stack of mail that Anne gave her and admits to having read them all. She breaks down, speaking of her father, and it seems like David takes a bit to decide if he's going to explain what happened and decides against it. Like, I, I felt a moment here where he's like, am I going to tell her right now? Yeah. No, I'm not. The moment passed. Jade tries to leave. She has a bus back to school, leaving in an hour, and he begs her to stay with him, but she tells him goodbye and that it's time to give up on them. You have to let it go. Go back to Chicago. Please take care of yourself. Please say goodbye. But he can't do it. He takes her hand, sobbing, and he won't let go, and he drags her to the bed, begging her to stay. She fights hard against him, and for a good 15 seconds, I was sure this movie was going to end with him strangling her to death on the bed. Yeah. Jade! Uh, uh, no, Jade! Please no, stay with please. me! Let I don't me care know. what happens to me, Jade! No, no, All no, I care no, about is you! Please, no! Don't you see? No, I can't no, let it go! No! It's not no, over! No, We're not finished! Work. It won't work! Jade, it's all over! Look at me! Look at me! Jade, we're not finished! No! I know you still love me! He collapses on top of her and the music changes moods. Suddenly she's grasping for him and pulls in close and admits that he was right all along and she does love him. Uh, Woof. <laughs> so terrible. They kiss. It's just like, oh, that's the, yeah. that's the nail in your coffin right here. Yeah. You know what? You both deserve each other. Yeah. I don't care. Live, live happily ever after. You both are just yeah. absolute worst people. But right? I'm yeah. okay with that. Like, I, for, yeah, some, yeah, yeah. for some reason in this movie, like, it didn't make me upset because I didn't like her either in this scenario. Yeah. Like, they're both I'm, crazy. They're both crazy. So I'm just like, yeah, fine. Be crazy together. Yeah. This is good. We dissolve forward in time several hours and they talk as though they're returning to Chicago together as a sure thing. And nothing ever happened. This is just going to go right back to the, where they left off. Keith calls up to David's room from the lobby of his building. He knows Jade's here, and he wants to have a conversation with them both. After he hangs up, he crosses the room to reveal that Ingrid is here with him, and he wants her to tell Jade what she just told him. Ingrid's nervous to share her suspicion with Jade in case she's mistaken. David and Jade come downstairs, and unfortunately for David, he's still wearing the only shirt he brought to New York. <laughs> Which is the only shirt that he's worn through half the movie. Yeah. Ingrid is certain that this is the same man whose arm she held beside Hugh as he died. Keith explains to Jade that David was there when Dad died and basically accuses him of murder. Pappy's dead because of him. No! He killed your father! She turns to David and begs him to say it isn't true, but he can't. Who was there? It was an accident. 
Keith loses it and tries to choke David to death. They demolish every piece of furniture in the lobby, and Ingrid at least bothers to point out that even though he was there, he wasn't remotely responsible for yeah. his death. Mm-hmm. So, but then, so what was the point? Why even this? throw him under the bus here? Yeah. Yeah. Or under the cab. Whoa. <laughs> or over the cab. <laughs> Just full on meet Joe Black. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> Police arrive in record time to break up the fight. David fights off the cops as they drag him to their car at the curb. What are you fucking doing? I, I really wanted them to shoot him. I was just like, shoot him! <laughs> shoot him dead! <laughs> we dissolve to winter at the old dilapidated cabin on the Butterfield property. Looks like Keith hasn't gotten around to fixing it up yet. Jade walks through the snow recounting that night of the party with her mother. She tells her mom that it hurts to turn away from David since he still loves her and she thinks no one will ever love her like that again. Anne tells her daughter the opposite of what Hobson told Arthur last week. Always be loved, you'll see. Not like that. Not like David. As they part ways, the Oscar-nominated theme starts playing, this time the Lionel Richie Diana Ross rendition, and we dissolve to David in prison. He grips the bars that crisscross his cell window, and he sees Jade outside, crossing the parking lot to visit him, and we freeze frame on her face. And I was hoping we would hear him scream, Jade! Again, because he imagined her, yeah. but this time she's real. Hmm. And then we get my other, my, uh, one of my actual pet peeves, <laughs> non-traditional credits. Oh, yeah. I, I, I kind of like the way the credits looked. White text on bright blue. Yeah, I think they looked good. I think it looked good. <laughs> <laughs> but why? What does it mean? I don't, what does it mean when you do something what like do this? Mean, what does it mean? It's Why a, does it a, have to mean anything? It's the credits yeah, color. Yeah, exactly. It's a reference to those uh, those pilot movies you like so much. <laughs> Iron Eagle movies? Yeah. <laughs> Didn't they do that in one of those? Well, no, the first one, it was it was yellow text on blue. It was unreadable. Yeah, that's that's much worse, actually. But white on blue looks nice, or blue on white, or whatever it was. No, it looks fine, but why change? Why don't all films have colorful text like it, it, it's done stylistically why isn't every protagonist spider-man <laughs> that's my impression of you <laughs> <laughs> I, well i do say it's that. basically the same thing <laughs> changes from the book despite scott spencer's complaints the plot of the movie follows the book decently closely except for the very ending david noticed Anne watching them by the fireplace the family don't notice the house is burning down because they're all in the living room doing LSD together, which probably changed because they moved the timeline from the 60s to the 80s. Hmm. Another interesting change is that in the book, Susan is not Keith's girlfriend, but a girlfriend of Jade's during the years that David was locked up. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I didn't get to read the whole book, so I didn't get past the ending of the film, but I do know that at least he serves his full prison sentence she moves to Europe and gets married to somebody and other stuff happens beyond the end of this story. Oh, interesting. That's, yeah. that's super different. Yeah, I think on purpose Zeffirelli had it end where it seems like they're going to be together. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's the point of the movie. I think that's the proper way to end it. The remake in 2014 is about as bad as it possibly could have been. It honestly feels like Universal just needed a movie to promote a bunch of shitty pop songs, so they greenlit a remake of whatever rom-drom from their catalog they hit on a dartboard. It starts with David's voiceover, which is already like, don't do voiceover at the beginning of this. Jade's parents never throw parties and only agree to throw one as a graduation gift. 
The dads are the only famous actors, or maybe I just think that because I'm old. Jade's dad is some rich dude played by Bruce Greenwood, and instead of some high-powered attorney, David's dad is a mechanic played by Robert Patrick. Hmm. But they emphasize the upper crust versus working class, where the 81 film is more yuppies versus counterculture. They also invent a deceased older brother for Jade to explain her father's overprotectiveness. In the remake, instead of being mad that they're dating, Jade's dad is justifiably upset because Jade drops out of medical school to date David, since she apparently can't do both, even though David wants to be a mechanic and can do that literally anywhere. Medical school? Yeah, medical school. How old is she? She just graduated high school and she's been accepted to Right, but she's an adult. Yeah. Well, she's over 18, yeah. The age has nothing to do with the remake. That's weird. That is weird. Eventually, Mr. Jade forces them to break up because David catches him cheating and David confronts him about it. What? So it's not that they're fucking in the house all the time. It's literally just they went on a family trip and he caught his dad cheating. So he said, you can't be around anymore. What? David is one million percent innocent in the remake. But is he like a crazy obsessive no, person? No, not at all. No, he's he's just a gentleman and okay, a scholar. Okay, this is just not even the same movie. Instead of burning their house down, David is arrested for hot wiring a carousel in a zoo after hours. <laughs> what? Jade's dad to bails him out <laughs> just Wait, to have fun. Just for They're just on a fun date but, and they break into a zoo and then he starts up the carousel and they get arrested. And he's there. arrested oh, for that? Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought it was like like some kind of like he was like having it go out of control to, no, to no, hurt somebody. They just wanted to ride a carousel <laughs> at night. You having fun, kids? <laughs> Making it go real fast. <laughs> Jade's dad bails him out but calls David's dad a dumb so they fight. <laughs> When Jade finds out that they fought, she drives away angry and gets in an accident. Somehow her father is able to parlay this into a restraining order, even though Jade is actively trying to get back to David the whole time. But he wasn't even in prison that long. Like, this wasn't a horrible offense, right? Right. This, w- this would be an overnight stay. But so the weird. girl got in an accident because she was angry that she heard about a fight, and somehow that's David's fault. No. And they get a restraining order against him. A father can't get a restraining order against someone's will yeah like for his adult daughter right she would have to get it herself and they would obviously include some of her testimony in deciding whether this restraining order was awarded yeah he could get a restraining order from him yeah because they fought and there's maybe reasonable fear but it wouldn't affect her at all exactly late in the film during an argument with her dad jade kicks over a candle on accident and sets their house on fire (laughs) her dad notices the building is on fire after she leaves it to find david and david rushes into the fire to rescue her dad the end dad is fine mom never tries to fuck david everybody's happy that's the whole movie okay it's called endless love oh my like God. it has anything to do with this movie this, it, it's supposed to be about the the, the over obsession and like and a romeo and juliet type story yeah. yeah not just like a shitty dad who's trying to break up a couple for no reason oh that's so far off this story it's not even the same movie but this movie i actually really enjoyed they're terrible people but they're very interesting characters yeah but like i i didn't i liked it i didn't hate it like i i normally would when i'm like oh why is she going back to be with him i'm like no they like this totally makes sense the way they set the characters up it works everything makes sense it it it, yeah exactly yeah she they they are both so addicted to each other 
and not just addicted to each other in the sense like in, addicted to sexually addicted to each other right to the point where she doesn't sleep she yeah. can't she can't sleep at night anymore without him and it, it is it is so disturbing sometimes and it feels like an obvious choice for franco zeffirelli to be doing because no, he yeah. famously did romeo and juliet mm-hmm. with olivia yeah. hussey and it's it's such a similar story and but it's this time more focused obviously on the sexual side of it specifically I really enjoyed like the development and reveal of like kind of who the family characters yeah, are. Both because, moms and dads seem like real people, really well-rounded, well-written characters. Yeah, and I'm, you know, at the very beginning of the film, I'm like, okay, who are these people? What's going on? Why are they, why are they like this? And I'm like, yeah. oh, okay, this is interesting. Oh, but they're they're not as exactly how they make themselves yeah. out to be. Like I, you know, I thought that there was a lot of depth in the characters. I I really disliked this movie. <laughs> um I didn't think it was poorly made. I didn't think it was poorly acted. I didn't think that the characters were bad. It just infuriated me sure. throughout. And I was, I, I couldn't enjoy myself. Like, I it's like, I appreciate the artistry that's going into this film, but I hate it. Like, I hate it just makes how you angry. horrible these people are. And yeah. it just made me angry. And I was like, I... I don't want to watch this anymore. If a movie makes me feel that angry without like breaking the rules or bad characters, I that usually means I liked it. Mm-hmm. If 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 the movie makes me care that much about these people that I can hate them like viscerally but still believe them as characters, yeah. Then I mean, it's it's an easy thumbs up for me. I mean, it's a thumbs up for me too, and I think you're exactly right though because the difference if this movie had made her a more reasonable person and she still made these choices i would have been upset and disliked it but the fact is that i think she consistently throughout the movie is just as at fault as he is for making these choices i don't know if she's just as at fault but I, she's I not she putting is. up enough of a fight against it oh she's absolutely just i mean as she's at fault. she's consenting to everything that's happening yeah for sure but she's not breaking into his house to fuck him in the middle of the night the way he's doing to her he doesn't have to he's coming to her well, but, but that's <laughs> true but, it's but, not delivery it's de <laughs> <laughs> but, but but that's her too because as much as she's obsessed with him if he's not around she doesn't care she she can switch off she she makes no attempt to see him she makes no attempts to get in contact or or yeah. to or to get to him if she were as obsessed as he is there would be another stack of letters for him to read yeah but but she's only 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 interested in him when he shows affection to her as seen by the scene where he throws her to the bed and is manhandling her and she's like yes this is what i've been missing (laughs) yeah but it also does feel like if he hadn't burned their house down that she would have been dating that other guy within a week i i think burning the house down just was like everything she ever wanted to happen. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's just proving how much he cares. But I do, I do feel like if anyone gets short shrifted in terms of the writing, it's the Jade character or the Keith character. Which Keith is just like his characterization is he's the angry brother character at the very beginning. He's a friend, and then very quickly he switches to I hate you. I'm gonna do whatever I can to to make you fail. It seemed really weird to me when. He gets to Keith in the burning house and Keith is like, what the fuck are you doing here? And just throws him on the ground and like tries to knock him out immediately. It's like, why do you care that your dad said I can't come here that much? That you're willing to like potentially kill me when I'm clearly here trying to help you communicate a message to you. But um, I know Brooke Shields' mother, who is usually on set for her movies and was again in this case, 
uh, had originally suggested she not take the part because it seemed like Brooke Shields' job was just to stand around and be excessively attractive the whole time, which it kind of is. Yeah. Yep, that's correct. (laughs) But Brooke Shields was the most attractive person in the world at the time this movie came out. Like, she's just a very beautiful person. I can't think of any other actress who would have sold that he would be that obsessed with her Mm -hmm. at Mm -hmm. this time. Yeah. No, I think she was perfect for the role. Yeah. Um, It's thumbs down from me, uh, only because I never want to watch this movie again. Sure. That's Mm. fair. Letterboxd, what are we thinking? So I have this film at number 23 out of 92. It is above the fan, which I thought was kind of a... It felt similar to me in, sure, yeah. in, in some in some ways and uh, in this below caveman. All right. Richard, what do you got? We both had letters. <laughs> obsessive men. Almost every movie we've covered has letters. <laughs> so, like written letters oh, by yeah. obsessive men. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was trying to think if there was a number movie that would prove me wrong, but it's not. <laughs> uh, I have it at number 43. Uh, which puts it below ruckus, but above my bloody Valentine. All right. I have it in 22, which is just under Dogs of War and just above Cutter's Way. Our director here was Franco Zeffirelli. I know him best for his Shakespearean adaptations, Romeo and Juliet, The Taming of the Shrew, or the Mel Gibson Hamlet. Earlier this season, we saw him alongside Brooke Shields at the 53rd Annual Academy Awards presenting the Oscar for Best Foreign Film, which went to Moscow Does Not Believe in Tears true today we only lost him a few years ago in 2019 zeffirelli was around for a long time i think he was like 96 or something writer judith rasco also wrote the script for terror train last season and one of the train carriages was named rasco's folly after her the novel was written by scott spencer the same novel was adapted into the 2014 remake although he was very angry about that and he also wrote the script for split image and fatherhood with patrick swayze as well as the novel adapted into Keith Gordon's Waking the Dead with Billy Crudup. The music here was from Jonathan Tunick. He also scored Ford Apache the Bronx, and most recently that Find Me Guilty Vin Diesel lawyer movie that Sidney Lumet directed. Cinematographer was David Watkin. Before this, he was a DP in Catch-22 and the Devils in 70 and 71. The same year, he lights Best Picture winner Chariots of Fire, and later Yentl, Return to Oz, another Best Picture winner out of Africa, Moonstruck, Hamlet, and Lumet's Gloria remake. Editor Michael J. Sheridan also cut Inchone, which we'll get to next season. Brooke Shields was Jade. According to the Barbara Walters After Oscar special this year, Brooke Shields was America's hottest sex symbol, 15 years old at the time, but 16 when the film was released. We've seen her so far in Blue Lagoon, and she's back in Muppets Take Manhattan, Speed Zone, a.k.a. Cannonball Run 3, The Simpsons as herself. She played the lead for four seasons of Suddenly Susan. She was Miley's mom in the Hannah Montana movie, and she seems to always be working. The most recent credit on her IMDb is A Castle for Christmas, which looks like one of those Netflix lifetime Christmas movies. Uh, she had a funny cameo in The Other Guys. Yeah. Because the running gag is that all these beautiful women are always hitting on Will Ferrell. Yeah. And they're at a basketball game. And it's like, it's Tracy Morgan, uh, Rosie Perez, Mark Wahlberg, then Will Ferrell, and then Brooke Shields. Yeah. And as they get up to leave, Brooke Shields goes, call me. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, in uh, in Cannibal Run 3 or Speed Zone, uh, which I watched when we reviewed the first movie, she plays a flight attendant, but she's playing Brooke Shields as a flight attendant because mm. the pressure of acting got to her, so she decided to take up a new job, which is kind of the same joke they do in Hamlet 2 
where Elizabeth Shue is playing herself, but also yeah. like a veterinarian or something. Martin Hewitt played David. This was his first film. He also played Dan, Graham Chapman's son, in Yellowbeard. He was Michael, the driver in Alien Predator, a.k.a. Alien Predators, in 86, and he kind of fell off the map after that. Shirley Knight played Anne. Zeffirelli sought Elizabeth Taylor for this part. Hmm. Shirley Knight played Beverly in As Good As It Gets. She's Paul Blart's mom, Margaret Blart, and B, a friend of Grandma's in Grandma's Boy. She's also Eileen in Our Idiot Brother, which I actually really enjoyed. That's the one with Paul Rudd, and he has all the sisters. Mm -hmm. I've never seen the Paul Blart movies, so earmuffs for the next 10 seconds if you were hoping to avoid spoilers. But apparently Margaret Blart is struck and killed by a milk truck at the beginning of the second movie. (laughs) So she's in both movies, but she gets hit by a milk truck in the beginning of the second one. Don Murray played Hugh. He's mostly TV movie credits, though he shows back up in Conquest of the Planet of the Apes. He's Jack Kelcher in Peggy Sue Got Married, and he's Winston in Ghosts Can't Do It. <laughs> I will bring that movie up every time I can. <laughs> Richard Kiley played Arthur. He has lots of credits, but not much I recognized. Although, apparently, he provides the voice of the tour in Jurassic Park. The voice you're now hearing is Richard Kiley. <laughs> we spared no expense. And also the voice of the cosmos in Howard the Duck. Beatrice Strait played Rose. She was Louise Schumacher in Network. Last season, she was Kay Neely in The Formula. That's the lady who died in a hot tub. And she's back as Dr. Lesh in Poltergeist. That's what I mostly recognize her from. Who is Rose? Uh, David's mother. Oh, okay. Yeah. I don't remember them saying her name. They only say it in one scene. Mm. James Spader played Keith. This was only his second film. You mean Jimmy. Jimmy Spader. Sorry, he's credited as Jimmy Spader. (laughs) That is correct. This is only his second film. Later, he shows up in Pretty in Pink, Mannequin, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He was on The Practice and Boston Legal. He shows up as Robert California late in The Office series. His most recent credits are as Red on The Blacklist or as the voice of Ultron in Avengers 2. Ian Ziering played Sammy. This was his first film. He's probably best known for his Beverly Hills 90210 original and reboot appearances. And more recently as Finn Shepard from the Sharknado series. Yeah. Penelope Milford played Ingrid. She's back later as Pauline Fleming in Heathers. Jan Minor played Mrs. Schweitzer. She's Mother Superior in Mermaids. She was Mrs. Kaufman in Willie and Phil last season. I don't know who Mrs. Schweitzer is. Yeah, there's Mr. and Mrs. Schweitzer. I'm assuming that those are the clients of David's parents. That makes sense. Jeffrey Marcus played Leonard. This was his first film, and he provides the voice of a German dignitary in Frozen. That was the only other credit I found that was (laughs) interesting. Tom Cruise played Billy. This was his first film. He's back for Taps later this year, and he also did some Top Guns, some Mission Impossibles, some Risky Businesses. No, just one. Uh, Jerry Maguire, Magnolia. You know who Tom Cruise is. Jamie Gertz played Patty. I don't remember who Patty was somebody in here one of these parties yeah she and james spader would later appear together in less than zero she was one of the kids in on the right track she's back as robin in 16 candles star in the lost boys and more recently she was dr melissa reeves the new fiance in twister is that more recently (laughs) it was like 1996 more recently than the lost boys (laughs) 25 years ago (laughs) david willis played walter he was able sunday in there will be blood Terry Shields played Nurse, so that's Brooke Shields' mother on set playing a nurse at the asylum. She's the mother of Brooke Shields, who co-stars with her in Wanda Nevada and Backstreet Dreams. Mark Arnold played Patient. He was Mick in Teen Wolf. 
Philip Lankowski played another patient. Last season we saw him as one of several autograph seekers in Stardust Memories. Next, he's Salieri's servant in Amadeus. Ron Perkins played another patient. He was Dr. Mendel Strom in Spider-Man, the scientist who Norman Osborn kills on his way out of the lab stealing the goblin suit and glider. Back to formula? <laughs> Walt Gorney played Passerby. I did not see Walt Gorney in this movie. <laughs> He's Crazy Ralph from Friday the 13th Part 1 and 2. Later he'll show up as Duke Domestic in Trading Places. And he returns to the Friday the 13th franchise narrating the opening of the seventh installment in 1988 from Beyond the Grave. <laughs> Spoiler for the second movie. Robert Altman played Hotel Manager. Yes, the director, whose work that we have reviewed in MASH, Health, and Popeye so far. Why? <laughs> Why not? You know? <laughs> okay. He also directed Brewster McCloud, The Long Goodbye, Nashville, Three Women, The Player, Shortcuts, among many others. George Kyle played Chicago Cop. He was also Farentino in Black Rain and Boogeyman in Tales from the Dark Side. Marianne Mueller-Lyle played a nurse, uncredited. We just saw her last week as a partygoer in Arthur. And as I mentioned in that episode, among other credits, she's possibly best known as Wrong Sarah from The Terminator. Billy Perkins played Receptionist. Billy was a commune member in Simon, Girl in the Rain in Tribute, Waitress in Jazz Singer, and Terrified Subway Woman in Nighthawks. <laughs> oh, the one that he like Shoots uses around. as a hot fridge? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think that's everything for Endless Love. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We have a Discord now. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Force 5, which IMDb describes like so. A martial arts expert leads a team of fellow martial artists to rescue a senator's daughter from an island ruled by an evil leader of a fanatical religious cult. It's not the senator's daughter, but close. We're close. We leave you now with a trailer for Force 5. Not just one, or two, or three, or four, but five deadly martial arts commandos. Force 5. He has the leadership. He has the strength. He has the speed. He has the skill. And she has everything else. What I need is a woman who can think and fight. And you come at the same time. <laughs> Force five. Starring five of the world's top-ranking martial arts experts. Joe Lewis. Three-time international karate grand champion. Richard Norton. World's foremost martial arts weapons expert. Benny the Jet Yurkides. World full-contact welterweight champion. Sonny Barnes. California heavyweight karate champion. Master Bong Suhan. Eighth degree black belt. And Sam Huntington. Ron Hayden. In Force 5.
Reverend Ray is a leader of the worldwide church with a very large following of dedicated young people. I thought it was more of a cult. Young disciples are programmed to feed one man's empire of evil. Have you signed over your trust fund? How do you know about that? How many men do you need? Five very special people. Their assignment, rescue the programmed youth and overcome the island stronghold. In number they are five.